Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's virtual church. We are now in this kind of situation due to the coronavirus. We are not allowed to meet in the school that we meet in, and the governor of the state of California won't let us meet as well. So we have been relegated to doing a video of our services, so we want to thank you for joining us. We're going to be trying to do this every Sunday as best we can. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to get your Bible out and turn to Exodus chapter 2. We're looking at the life of Moses, and the title of today's message is What a Crisis Reveals About Us. And we're going to look at the crisis that Moses went through, obviously, and Israel was going through, and we're going to look at how Moses reacted, and we're going to look at how God used his reaction to build into him things that he was missing in his makeup, in his character, in his walk with the Lord. So, As you can see, we've all been amazed at what we have seen from people in this world and how they're responding to this current crisis called the coronavirus. We've seen hysteria, panic, hopelessness, not able to cope with things. And obviously, the media has hyped us up to a level that's literally caused people to hoard things, to clear the shelves and stores, and to make runs on the banks. And so we can obviously see people's reaction to this crisis. And obviously, we've seen in our own state here in California and in our country and in the world, these draconian measures to completely shut down our society and our economy by not letting people go to work. Our businesses, restaurants, our way of life has been completely shut down. And did you notice, by the way, how easy it was for them to do this? And no one fought it. No one rebelled. No one said, hey, wait a second. Interesting, isn't it? Was this a test case to see how we would react? Anyway, things like this reveal what people are made out of. It reveals what's on, on the inside of the individual. And, and, and for people of this world who don't know the Lord, it reveals how they operate on fear and that fear of losing the security for their life whether that's in their health, a threat to their health, or a threat to their money, the world operates on security coming from this world. They don't know that all of this stuff they're doing is a counterfeit security, and that only Jesus, the Messiah, is our security in this life. It's really sad because this clinging to the world for security will lead this world into eventually accepting a one-world government that will take care of them, a one-world economy that will have a digital security involved in it and a digital cash system. And eventually, they'll be longing for security so much that a man will come in to solve all the world's problems, and you and I know that individual as the Antichrist. The world is set up for this. Paul talked about it. He warned about it. Uh, He said, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. The world is looking for peace and safety in the midst of crisis. And they cling to what this world offers them. Any hope, any security they might cling to, that's what they go after. And eventually, 
sudden destruction is going to come upon them, referring to the tribulation period. But even on our level as believers, something like this crisis that we're going through will reveal what's inside of us, what we're made out of. It reveals our spiritual maturity and how we're handling something like this. It can reveal our strengths, but it also reveals any weaknesses we might have, areas that we have not worked on or character flaws in us. And our response to this revealing of what's inside of us depends on whether or not we're going to own it, admit it, and start working on those deficits in our lives. Moses has been put through a crisis. Obviously, the big crisis was the enslavement of Israel in Egypt. And he has failed miserably trying to be Israel's deliverer. He now is a fugitive running from Egypt because he murdered a man. And Moses is going to have to own up to what he did, own up to the character flaws that he has. He's got a lot of strengths, but he has some things that he needs to work on. And Moses will not be able to blame God for it. God is using his failure to show Moses what he lacks. And then God's going to train him for the next 40 years so that what is weak in him will be strong. So what Moses lacks in his walk with the Lord and in his character is going to mature and grow. And eventually he's going to become truly the agent of deliverer that God wants him to be for Israel. It's going to take 40 years though. And the same goes for us. All of us want to be used by God in greater ways. But he will put us through a crisis to show us where we come up short. And our job is to own it, to work on those issues, so that one day God can use us for the next season of life, the next calling that he puts on our lives. And so what we want to do is learn from Moses' example, and we're going to turn to the scriptures, and we're going to apply them to ourselves as well. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 15. And it says this in the scriptures, in verse 15. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now we covered that last time, but it picks up the scene and gives us the setting. It's interesting, the historian Josephus tells us that because the Pharaoh had no son and heir, Moses was being nurtured for the throne. And now that's all over. Life has changed due to Moses' failure and his gaps in his game. Moses now is in a new location from Egypt and Israel, and he's in a fugitive state now. But this new change is the beginning of God tutoring him to be the deliverer of Israel. Moses is probably at his lowest point in his life. He has failed big time, and he's getting served a slice of humble pie. But he's going to learn something. And it's described in Psalm 119.67 what he's going to learn. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Notice that, that before he was afflicted, Moses went astray. But now he's afflicted with the consequences of his actions. He's on the run, but now he will keep the word of God. He will learn his lesson, and now it's better for him. He's in a better learning position now. He's teachable, and the same thing goes for you and I. And so Moses is going to learn from his failures, which stem from his character. He lacks certain things. His pride will have to be broken. And he will have to come to the realization that he doesn't have it all together spiritually. He will have to own his weaknesses, as we do. He and us, in order to be used by God, 
cannot deny our faults, rationalize and blame others for what we are or what we have become and how we behave. We have to learn about our shortcomings, and it's tough. It shocks us at first when we see our shortcomings. It's going to shock Moses. It stings. It kind of hurts. The truth sometimes obviously hurts, but the truth does set us free. We have to see that our life is our problem and no one else's. We have to own it. We are not the causes of all the problems that are coming our way, but we still are responsible in how we respond and handle what comes our way. And our responses to things indicate what's inside of us. And, and what's inside of us is sometimes linked to weaknesses and, and sometimes it's linked to strengths. Let's look at verse 16 now. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Verse 17, then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So obviously this was a routine of these daughters of, of Jethro coming to water his flock. And obviously it indicates that the shepherds were bullying the girls, making them wait until they watered their flocks and they were watered last. And so they were kind of harassing the girls and bullying them. But Moses is there and he stood up and helped them and he defended them. And then he waters their flock. And what's going on here? Well, Moses needs a wind under, under his belt. He's failed miserably, and God allows the situation to give Moses some hope. All is not lost. God knew that Moses has this instinctual desire to help people and deliver people from the wrongs and to make things right. So Moses is going to learn how to be a deliverer on a smaller scale rather than jumping into a larger scale and delivering a nation. So his first starting ground, his first teaching lesson is deliver seven women who need help from you from some slack-jaw shepherds who are bullying these women. It was like God was saying, let's see if you can do this without creating a mess. This is like Moses learning to crawl before he can walk. And notice that Moses does have an incredible moral strength. He, it, and this moral strength of righting wrongs always prompts him to act. Moses never took the option of saying to himself, hey, look, I've tried to help people and it just keeps backfiring on me and I'm not going to do this again. It turns out bad every time. And most people do this. Most people respond this way. They try a few times and it fails and they say, I'm done. I'm not doing this again. But Moses has such a deep sense of justice that he hates injustice. And it doesn't matter to him who it is. He'll intervene uh, to save a Hebrew from an Egyptian. He'll intervene to save another Hebrew from another Hebrew. Uh, he'll also intervene when non-Hebrew men oppress non-Hebrew women in this situation by the well. He doesn't give up because it is the right thing to do for him. Uh, so, so Moses has this incredible sense of justice. It's very strong in him. He doesn't care if he's alone. He doesn't care if he's isolated. He doesn't care if there's consequences or the odds are against him. He's outnumbered by other shepherds. He just goes for it and takes care of business. So the great traits about Moses is he is not a coward. He will act. He will not sit on his hands and do nothing. He's not a bystander. And this is a rare quality even for today. 
most people won't act or do something in the face of injustice for various reasons. And we call this the bystander effect. Most people just won't get involved. Like, for instance, when someone witnesses a crime, most people put in that situation won't help the victim. They'll watch it happen, but they won't do anything about it. Anyway, on a bigger scale, this is happening in America all around. We have injustices going on all the time, right? Our media is guilty of this. Some of our courts are like this, these activist judges who know something's wrong, but they rule in a, in a different way. We see it with the left politically. We see it with elitists. We see things that happened with uh, um, the FBI. We see it with the religious left, the globalists, the entertainment industry. They, they, there's things going on wrong, and they won't do anything about it. They're cowards. And people get away with all kinds of stuff that would land you and I in jail, right? And no one does anything about them. If we bleached our servers, what would they do to us? If we let Benghazi happen, what would they do to us? What about the Catholic Church covering up pedophile priests? How about the cheating in sports, the steroids in sports, or have, like the Houston Astros who cheated? Nothing's done. These guys are still playing. How about politicians doing the bidding of financiers and globalist elite? Instead of representing the people um, that's under them, they represent these special interest groups. How about what's going on in the schools? How come no one does anything about that, takes a stand against it? The invasion of socialism, communism, Marxism, and sexual immorality in our public schools. How come no one takes a stand against that? How come everyone just allows it to happen? Or how about allowing non-citizens to take advantage of what our country offers to its own citizens? What about that? How come no one takes a stand for our citizens? People end up dead because they have information that would condemn other people. How come nothing happens to, to that? Planned Parenthood, who murders babies and sells body parts. Nothing happens to them. How about parents allowing their kids to take hormone blockers and actually physically reconstruct their bodies to be either a girl or a boy? That's child abuse, but how come no one does anything about that? And the list, folks, as you know, go on and on and on. And at this point, not much can be done. People should have stood up against all of this years ago. But because of the indoctrination in our schools and universities and the failure of opposition to all of this that's happening in our society, there are very few Moses anymore. And the Moses that do exist can't affect any change anymore. It's too big. But let's take one example, one current example of this, since we're talking about this. And it's about this coronavirus. And this coronavirus is being used to change a lot of things in our world. Never in modern history has there been such a hysterical reaction to an infectious outbreak. AIDS, SARS, Ebola, West Nile virus, or the swine flu. Nothing came close to this, this level of panic that we're seeing. Obama's swine flu outbreak ended up generating over 60 million infections globally, resulting in about 12,500 deaths in the United States. And guess what? No masks, no quarantines, no lockdowns, no panic. Twelve of the top medical experts whose opinions on the coronavirus outbreak contradict the official narratives of the mainstream media is feeding us. Here's what one of them said. This is Dr. Shukarit uh, Bhakti. He said, All these measures are leading to self-destruction and collective suicide based on nothing but a spook. Or how about Joel Kettner? He says, I have never seen anything like this, anything near like this. 
I'm not talking about the pandemic because I've seen 30 of them, one every year. It's called influenza and other respiratory illness viruses. We don't always know what they are, but I've never seen this reaction. And I'm trying to understand why. How about Dr. Pietro Vernazza? He says this, we should better integrate the scientific facts into the political decisions. Professor Hendrik Streck said this, the new pathogen is not that dangerous. It is even less dangerous than SARS-1. The larger narrative in this panic and the actions being taken by the world governments is kind of unbelievable. The entire world is on lockdown and we have basically shut down our economy and possibly could destroy if this continues on. Why? It's weird. And now we have a $2 trillion bailout that is the largest single government bailout in human history. All of this for a virus that runs its course in a couple months? The Spanish flu of 1918 killed over 50 million people in a single year. Even with worst-case predictions of the coronavirus will not amount to a fraction of that. Why are they going so crazy over this? Is it to bring about massive change? Is it to destroy the American way of life and to move us towards globalism? See, America stands in the way of globalism, a one-world economic governmental system. And so to the globalists, America must be taken down in that sense to kill the dollar and to move the system to a cashless system. Just recently in this coronavirus stimulus package, guess what is in it? Most people didn't know this. Buried deep down inside the corona stimulus package from the Democratic Congress is a provision that creates a U.S. digital dollar that will sit inside a digital wallet controlled by the Federal Reserve. And that will probably be tied to one of those fancy new chips from ID2020. Here's a screenshot from the website. You can see it for yourself. You, you, don't take my word for it. Research it yourself. And then ID2020 Alliance, what we talked about last week, which is funded by Bill Gates, which is in partnership with the United Nations, wants to create a digital ID for everyone on the planet. And this is the perfect crisis to push this forward. So if you take a step back, understand that there's a lot more going on in this hysteria over the coronavirus. It's to seize power within the United States by global elites and to create a crisis using a real virus to accelerate their goals and what they want to achieve. Even though in this latest stimulus package, they said they took out the digital currency. When you look at the, the, the final cut of the stimulus package, the language of the digital currency is still in it. And as you know, we talked about this last week, people like Bill Gates want to do forced vaccinations along with chipping people with a digital ID. So it seems that something else is being used in a greater way to get their goals accomplished. And so to them, is it okay to kill the dollar? Is it okay to kill our economy? So we can have people begging for socialism or a digital economy? Maybe. But back to my point. Why doesn't anyone put on the brakes and say, wait a minute, let's not overreact. Let's not shut down the society. Let's not shut down the economy. Are there not enough Moseses in our world to stop all of this evil that evil wants to do? Well, again, as you know, as prophecy students, it's predicted in the Bible that all these things would come about and would happen. A global government, a digital currency, and tracking devices and whatnot. That's all predicted. The Bible just never told us how these things would be brought about. 
but now you start seeing how they can. Take a crisis, make people afraid, and they will be ready to accept the new paradigm. God, understand, understand this. God is giving this world what it wants. It's a sign of Romans 1 being issued to the entire world. Romans 1 talks about it giving over. If they don't want to worship God, then they're given over to their sin. They're given over to their desires. And, and you and I right now have a front row seat. And we're seeing no Moseses intervene. No one's stopping it. Well, Moses wasn't like that. Moses didn't stand by, and neither should we. Moses acted to deliver and help his people. He wanted to stop injustice and intervene when he could. And please don't misunderstand me. I am not talking about Marxism social justice warriors or Marxism's social gospel. That kind of stuff is not found in the Bible, even though a lot of churches are pushing the social gospel and the social justice movement. That's unbiblical. And that's when you know that church has been liberalized. When you see a church participating in social justice things, that church is now off the mark. But do you want to know why Moses was like this? Moses acted on biblical principles and values that he held that was passed on from Abraham all the way through the Jewish people, orally. They knew about this. They knew God's laws and statutes, even though it wasn't written down. They knew what God wanted, and he knew that he needed to act on this because this was the right way to act. See, Moses didn't help people out of some type of personal loyalty or that he was looking for some reward to get. He didn't even know these people, but there was no hesitation because he acted on principle and values that he had learned from the Jewish people. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to help people for personal reward. It wasn't about anything he got. In fact, when he helped these people, there were harsh consequences, a death penalty on him from Egypt, rejection by Israel. He could get physically hurt or die by taking on multiple shepherds. So there was no rewards in this, only the consequences of risking his life for others, a willingness to die for others. Jesus said this in John 15, 13 about this principle. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. This is why God selected Moses to be Israel's deliverer. Moses was always willing to sacrifice himself for others, to stand in the gap, to push against evil. And this is what you and I should be about as well. This is what we're called to do, to agape love. And agape love means standing in the gap in the face of evil. It means self-sacrificing love, regardless of how I feel or think about the person, friend or enemy, to seek the highest good for the person. So God is going to continue now to prepare Moses by teaching some other things that he doesn't have. He has these good strengths, but Moses lacks certain things, and primarily, he lacks humility. And before God's going to use Moses, Moses has to become a humble man. Let's return back to the scripture and it says this in verse 18, when they came to Reuel, and Reuel is another name for Japheth. Japheth is probably his name as a priest, and Reuel is the name, his personal name. And obviously he's the father of these women. And he said, how is it you have come so soon today? And then obviously because of Moses' interaction, obviously that's how come they came back. It's obvious that Moses helped them and defended these gals. And verse 19, and they said, 
an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. So they see Moses as an Egyptian. He's dressed probably like an Egyptian. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. Verse 20. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to live with the man. So a lot of transaction happened. They invited Moses to eat. Obviously, Jethro did. But through this transaction, they invited Moses to stay. And Moses was quite content. He was willing to live with Jethro and eventually take on managing his flocks for him and working for Jethro for about 40 years. Interesting enough, we talk about where Mount Sinai is, and the new theory now is that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And there's a lot of evidence that points that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. We'll get to that when we get to Mount Sinai. And there's a split rock there. There's altars there. The top of the mountain is burnt. And we're going to look at different aspects of that. But close to this area of where Moses would have taken the children of Israel into Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is where Midian was at, there's a place by tradition that's called Jethro's Caves. And this is interesting. I have some pictures I want to show you of Jethro's Caves. And this is in Saudi Arabia. It's close to the area. This is exactly where Moses would have been. And by tradition, thousand years of tradition, the people of Saudi Arabia say this is Jethro's Caves. And it's interesting, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, we're not sure, but a lot of evidence points to this location of where Moses might be during that time. And obviously in these caves, this has been a very prominent individual. He was a priest of Midian, so he was like a high priest. In many ways, Jethro is like Melchizedek. He's a high priest of the area. And we even have shots of inside the caves of what it looks like. Well, anyway, this is just interesting enough, but if these are Jethro's caves... You're looking at where Moses would have been and where he would have eaten every night with the family and where he stayed for 40 years. Very interesting. We'll pick more up on the area when we get into the uh, Exodus part where they're going through the desert, and we'll talk more about that. But let's go back to Moses. Moses, at this point in his life, is content to live with Jethro in this obscure place. He accepted this new reality, this new paradigm. And what he was on is called the backside of the desert. He is now in a position of being unknown and to live in this obscure place. The Saudi Arabian desert, there's nothing there, okay? And when you look at the Saudi Arabian desert, it's a picture of spiritually what Moses is going to go through. And it's a picture of the desert life. And here's the question for you and I. Are you and I okay with going through a period in in our lives called the desert life? See, in the desert life where Moses is going to be, there's no perks, there's no fun things to do, there's no activities, no vacations, no rest, no relaxation. It's just the monotony of doing the same thing day in and day out of taking care of sheep. And sometimes we all have to go through this monotony, this desert life. We have to go through it. And there's no way around it. And maybe say, well, I don't need it, but so-and-so needs it. Or you might say, I'm tired of living like this. Well, until we accept the desert life, we will never learn and move past the desert. And this is where Moses is at. See, in the desert, you and I will learn to tolerate and deal with the harshness of the environment. Moses had to deal with the heat. 
the sand and everything, even in getting into your food, the blinding sun, the lack of water, the lack of food. It is in the desert where you and I learn what is important and how to cope with life. You learn to accept the reality of the desert that you didn't think you would have to deal with in your life, but here you are. And Moses, obviously, he had all these decisions to make before he did this. He could have stayed in Egypt and taken the good life and, and married Cleopatra, so to speak, and, and been part of the palace and eventually taken the, 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 the kingdom of Egypt. But Moses chose to identify with nobodies, the, the Hebrews, and now he's chosen to identify with being just a nobody. He's out in Saudi Arabia, Midian, and he's a nobody. The question is, are you and I okay with being nobodies in God's program? See, Moses chose the, back, the backstage rather than being on stage. He chose being behind the scenes rather than the star actor. He will not receive any recognition or attaboys or appreciation. Uh, he won't be seen as a hero in the desert. And he's okay with that. And we have to be okay with that too. And see, when we serve Christ, we have to be willing to serve Christ without recognition from man. We cannot serve the Messiah with the idea that we want to be seen by man and applauded by man. That's a recipe for disaster. I've seen people try to do that, and they're taken down by their own pride. Better to be behind the scenes where no one sees you and doing the will of the Lord. Like Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, do things in secret so your Father will reward you in heaven. But if you do things for, the, for people to see you, you have your rewards in that. See, think about this. All around Moses, day after day for 40 years, four decades, all around him were sheep. I want you to think about that. In Egypt, he was somebody. People took notice. But out in the desert, the sheep don't care who he was. They could care less about Moses, how much Moses knew and all the positions that he had in Egypt. Sheep are not impressed. They were not even his flock, right? They were Jethro's flock. They were someone else's flock. He was managing someone else's flock. Notice the learning experience. The sheep don't care who he is, and the sheep belong to someone else. It's a picture of what he's going to do with Israel. The flock of Israel does not belong to Moses. It belongs to God. And the Jewish people don't care about Moses' credentials. They don't care where he comes from. In many ways, they're like sheep. In verse 21, it says this, And he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. So, so Jethro thinks so highly of Moses, he gives his daughter Zipporah. And notice it says, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now, as you know, in the Old Testament, they would name a child after they're born, typically. And they would give him that name that represents maybe the situation they're in or something, uh, characteristics about the child. Well, Moses names his first boy according to the situation that he's in. He's an obscure stranger in a foreign land. So this naming of Gershom reflects Moses' state of mind. And this is where I want you to see this. 
Moses has become a permanent resident there among the Midianites and an exile from both the land of Egypt and from his own people, the Hebrews. He is really an ailing, a foreigner, and he's trying to state that through the naming of Gershom. For 40 years, because of the consequences of his actions, he was separated both from his home, Egypt, and also from the Hebrews that he now identifies with, right? He had failed miserably to deliver his people. His people rejected him. He failed as a citizen of Egypt and was now on the run from Egypt as a fugitive. So no one wanted him. It's a form of rejection. It's a typology as well for the Messiah. Messiah would present himself to Israel the first time and they would reject him. And it's the same thing with Moses. They would reject him too. And so now Moses is going to wait until God's ready to send him back. So he's in this foreign land alone, far from his normal environment, and he's going to take on an obscure and lowly profession of being a shepherd. I, I, I think about this. This is counter to him being a deliverer or a rescuer or a prince of Egypt. His circumstances now seem to run counter to his character. Remember, Moses was a man of action. Get it done. Intervene to right the wrong. Defend the oppressed. And now in this new environment, he cannot use any of those strengths. Isn't that interesting? Do you know why? Because God already knows he has those strengths in him. But his circumstances do not require him to engage in deliverance of anybody. So those are going to be put on the back burner for a while. The environment, think about this, offers no opportunities to exercise his passion to right the wrongs. Why would God take that away from him? Sometimes that happens to us. Our desires, our passions are sometimes taken away from us. We can't use them in the environment that we're in. In his mind, Moses' mind, he's just an exile that has nothing to offer to anybody. And he resigns himself to being just an alien in a foreign land. But what's God doing? God needs him to develop other skills. He needs him to develop other character uh, issues in him. He needs him to, to be developed in other areas spiritually that Moses doesn't have. So even though he has these strengths, they're not needed. What's needed for his environment are these other things that Moses lacks. So God puts him in the desert to grow him up in these areas. And that's what God will do. You might have incredible gifts that God gave you, but then he puts you in the desert and you can't use those gifts. Why? Because he wants to develop another skill set. He wants to develop other parts in our spiritual walk and our spiritual maturity in this new environment. And that's how he grows us. He forces us to grow these other things. God is creating something in Moses that he lacks. And this is where our application comes in at this point. So we're going to learn from what God is teaching Moses, what God is wanting to teach us as well. So let's go through these one by one, real briefly. You can jot these down. I'll have them on the screen for you. We're going to look at what God was going to teach Moses. Number one, Moses' counterfeit network of security needed to be removed. Now, what does that mean? Back in Egypt, he had all this network of support. 
He had his Egyptian ties, he had his Jewish ties, and he had a big network of support. He had the money backing him, he had his position, all this network that gave him, in his mind, security. Okay? But now he's removed from all of that, removed from that network of support, whether it's from the Jews or the Egyptians. And now he has no network of support. He's on the backside of the desert. And this needs to happen because God is teaching Moses, Moses, I am your network of support. I am who you're going to rely on. I don't need you relying on your network of support. I need you to solely focus on me. And see, a lot of times, even with us, God will do that to us. If we're too trusting in our counterfeit networks of support, like for instance, our contacts, our bank account, our retirement, our family, our job, the list goes on and on and that we surround ourselves with. Right now with the coronavirus, people are getting support by having toilet paper, stocking up on toilet paper. I mean, it's ridiculous, but that gives them a sense of security. It's all counterfeit. So God removes the individual into the desert away from any network of support so they can see that all they have is God for their support. And so sometimes God has to do that for us. So he's doing that with Moses. Number two, Moses' humility needed to be fostered and developed because he didn't have any, and his pride needed to be squashed. See, Moses' pride was a driving force that made him think he could take matters into his own hands, take care of business, and deliver uh, Israel from the Egyptians. And it went bad on him thinking that. See, God doesn't use prideful people. Even if the person's eager, like Moses, to deliver Israel, to do something for God, his pride got in the way. God says, I resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. Prideful people cause more problems than it's worth. It's not worth using them because they they let bombs go off and and the shrapnel hits everybody like what Moses did. They try to steal glory from God and God says, I will not share my glory with another. So Moses, for 40 years of his first part of his life, grew up thinking he was somebody. That's his pride. Now he will be taught in the desert for the next 40 years that he's a nobody. Humility. And why? So that the next 40 years, he will know that God uses nobodies who follow his word to accomplish great things for the Lord in the remaining part of his life. Isn't it funny? Moses lived 120 years, 40 years of being prideful, 40 years of being humbled, and then the last 40 were being used by God after he was made humble. Scripture says that Moses was the most humble of men in the scriptures. How did he get that way? 40 years in the desert. That's how. And that's what God will do to us. Humility is found when we come to the end of ourselves, that we have nothing to bring to the table. The task is too big for us. We have to acknowledge spiritual poverty, and then we're in need of help in God's provision. This is the only attitude that will work with God, and God will work with. He won't work through pride. And Moses will learn this. Number three, Moses' independent attitude needed to be curtailed. God was basically saying, in effect, I need you to be dependent on me, not to act without my instructions, not to act without me. I don't need you trying to accomplish things and taking matters into your own hands. You ended up with a dead body when you took things into your own hands, Moses, and you buried the body in the sand. 
So at this point, I don't need you singing Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. You're going to do it the Lord's way now, and I need to teach you this. Number four, Moses needed to learn the wisdom behind God's timing. Timing, the timing of God is everything. God, in effect, was saying, you must wait on me, and you don't act alone on your own timing. To you, Moses, any time is right. And there's a certain scene in, in the New Testament where Jesus' family was saying, well, why don't you go and present yourself now? And he told them the same thing. For you, any time is right. The idea is God's timing is the perfect timing. And you can't barge your way through things, push through a door, and try to force things open because you'll start manipulating things and make a mess. And that's what Moses did because he didn't wait on the timing. In many ways, if you want to think about it, Moses is like a dog on a leash that's untrained. You ever seen a dog on a leash that's pulling the, uh, the master and that dog doesn't know uh, to not get ahead of the master? He's just choking at the leash around him, almost pulling the arm out of his master. Moses is like that. He will not walk at the pace of the master. And the same thing is true on the flip side. Sometimes we want to get ahead of God and we want to force things, but other times we want to drive our feet. God's saying, act now, act now, do something right now. But then we're like, no, I don't want to do that because I'm not ready for this. And so we drag our feet. And so we can either get too ahead of God or too behind God, but we have to come to the realization that God's timing is perfect. When he says to act, that's when we act. Not before or not after. Right when he says to act. And that's what Moses will find out. Five, Moses needed to learn that spiritual goals are never achieved through our flesh. See, the spiritual goal was to deliver Israel. That's a spiritual goal. That could not be done by the flesh, and that's what Moses tried to do. He didn't rely on the power of God or anything that God was telling him to do, any instruction. And so, Moses is going to be taught that anything that needs to be accomplished in the spiritual realm has to have the spiritual tools available to that to accomplish that. And this is why the Bible says, not by, by power or might, but by my spirit. If we're trying to accomplish spiritual things, we can't force them by the flesh. The flesh does nothing for it. It will not accomplish anything. Even in our own spiritual walk, think about this. If you try to manipulate your Christian life through legalism, that's of the flesh, you won't be sanctified. Legalism doesn't sanctify you. It doesn't accomplish anything spiritually for you. And Paul will talk about that in Colossians chapter 2. Galatians 6, 8 points this out. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit uh, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. In this passage, Paul's not talking about salvation. He's talking about doing things through the sin nature versus doing things through the Spirit of God. And the two bring different results. And so that's what Moses needed to learn. Sixth, Moses needed to learn that burying his problems doesn't make them go away. See, Moses created a problem. He killed a man. So he thinks, well, I'll just bury him in the sand. Problem solved. And what happened? The next day, people found out. So burying a, bo a body was found out. Or in other words, burying a problem will eventually come out and surface as well. There's not enough sand in your soul to bury the problem. It will come out eventually. 
And that's what Moses found out. You can't just bury problems. God wanted him to face his issues, deal with them, not run from them. And a lot of times, even in our own lives, we have things that happen to us, things that we do, like Moses, and we just want our problems to go away, so we just bury it deep down in our soul. We don't want to deal with it. So we deny it, we rationalize it, and, and we, we talk ourselves out of it like it didn't happen. Some people have buried things in their life so deep, they can't even remember it. But guess what? That dead body comes out. That dead body is found out, and it resurfaces, and it resurfaces in people's actions. So sometimes you want to know why people behave the way they do. They've buried something deep inside. It's become a seed. It's taken root. It's formed a tree, and now it's broken the surface, and now you see the tree and the branches because they buried something deep inside. And so God wants him to learn this lesson. Don't do that, Moses. Deal with your problems face, uh, head on. Seven, Moses needed to learn to be a shepherd instead of a rancher. And there's a big difference between that. If you've ever seen a rancher that drives cattle, he's behind them, he leads from behind, and he pushes them, scares them, makes them afraid, and drives the herd from behind. That's a spiritual lesson there. The leaders in the Bible are shepherd leaders. And shepherd leaders go out in front of the flock and lead by example and, and the flock follows them. Moses is a rancher. He's used to cracking whips. He's used to telling people what to do and forcing them what to do because he has the power and authority as a prince of Egypt to do something like that. Now, he will not be able to force people to do anything. He has to deal with people on a whole different level, and he has to shepherd them rather than ranch them. And this is what you learn in ministry. You can't force anyone to do anything. All you can do is lead by example. If they follow, they follow. But at the end of the day, if you start to ranch people, it's called lording it over. And that's what you start seeing at some churches. The pastor or the, the leadership will start lording it over and ranching them rather than leading them. And think about it in our own lives. Jesus told us not to lord it over people. We don't need to be a control freak, a dictator, an authoritarian to get our ways, to manipulate people, to get what we want. That's not how the Bible uh, advocates. It advocates servant leadership. The leader serves the others. That's how it is. Lastly, number eight, Moses needed practical experience. And this is, is as practical as it gets, okay? Eventually, Moses is going to lead the children of Israel through the Sinai Desert, across the Red Sea, and into Saudi Arabia, where Midian is. Guess where Moses learns the area where he's going to bring Israel? It's in Midian. It's in Saudi Arabia. So Moses is going to learn the topography of Saudi Arabia because eventually... All those nooks and crannies that he learned about that desert, he's going to bring the children of Israel into, and he's going to be able to be a good guide because he knows the lay of the land. He needed to know this. And so this day-after-day -day toilsome life of a, of a, shepherd, a shepherd in the Sinai area, day-after-day, day, what he did was learning the, the topography, where to go, where not to go, and it gained him knowledge, practical knowledge. And that's what God will do with us. 
He will use sometimes our experiences that we've been through and use that experience for our next calling, our next season of life. And you say, yeah, I've been there, done that. And that you that is used for the next calling. That's how God works. And that's what he did with Moses. He needed to learn the topography of the desert. And he did. So to wrap things up, like like God did with Moses, God will do the same thing with us. This current crisis of this coronavirus of being shut down in our society, it's going to reveal things that that are inside of us. It's going to reveal strengths that we have, but it's also going to reveal weaknesses. And any crisis will do this. Our job is to look at the deficits inside of us, the gaps in our game, the weaknesses that we have, the lack of faith maybe, whatever it is, the sin maybe, and deal with them as they come. Go through that desert experience and grow those areas. God will call us to something, like he's going to call Moses to something. But typically in that call, when he calls you and I, there's going to be a delay. And that delay is a time period that he wants to get you ready for. So even if you feel that God has called you to do something, but you can't do anything right now about it, there's a reason for that. You're in the desert. You're being, you're being groomed. You're being taught. You're, you need to learn some things before he's ready to enact you. And he's doing that right now with us. If we would only cooperate and work on those areas of weakness like Moses did, then eventually God is going to use you in ways you never thought you could be used for. That's exciting. That's what we all want. So cooperate in the desert. I know it's hard, but you're going to be used in a greater way. God bless you. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.